Uh, all right. Well, the um, that that introduction, introduction appreciated. I, I have uh, four kids, uh, all girls. Uh, we have a dog and a cat, both female, and so uh, it is really good to be at a men's conference. I guess that's the best way to say it. Um, my wife, um, actually, the, the way that I ended up uh, here at the conference is that Jeff McKeever um, was up vacationing in Traverse City on a weekend and uh, stopped into our church. And uh, after the service, we got a chance to talk. My wife and I got to talk with him and his wife. And uh, as, as they talked, there, there became a realization that my wife had gone to youth group with Jeff's wife here at, at Berean. And, um, and so it just kind of provided a, a, a platform for us to uh, talk and to get to know each other a little bit. And, uh, and then that's been a, a relationship that I've uh, enjoyed uh, with Jeff. And, um, and I'm certainly encouraged by the, the conference and excited about that. Um, I uh, have a couple things I want to say uh, just in, re- in, in regard to my, my own uh, journey, my own life. Um, and then a little comment about the workshop and then we'll get started. But before I do that... Um, I have a book, and I'm going to give away a book, um, and I'm going to give it away to the person who has been to Traverse City most recently. So it's May 2011. Has anyone been to Traverse City in 2011? Oh, okay, what months? Oh, George. All right. This, this book is called uh, Wrestling with an Angel. It's written by a guy named Greg Lucas, and... Uh, our workshop is on suffering and trials, and Greg Lucas is a, uh, a police officer um, who has some difficult uh, family uh, circumstances, and uh, just, uh, he, actually, I think he writes a blog, and that book is just a compilation of his blog entries, uh, but it's incredibly helpful to see him try to apply the gospel uh, to a very tough, very tough family situation, and um, if you're interested in the book, uh, the, the, the publisher of the book is uh, Cruciform, Cruciform Press. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Cruciform Press, but uh, they basically asked the question, if publishing started today, actually in 2010, if publishing would have started right now, what would publishing look like? Uh, so in a sense of, if we didn't have all the baggage of publishing over the course of decades and, and whatever, um, and that's what they do. And so they publish a book, about a book a month. Um, there's a subscription uh, that you can get to their uh, publishing. Uh, it's like $3.99 a month, and it's just digitally sent to you like an ebook, um, or you can buy them in hardback uh, as well. But I'm going to reference just a quote from that book later, and uh, I think it's a, it's a good one. Okay, a little bit about me and, uh, um, and maybe my, my journey. My, my guess is uh, that you're somewhere on the road of uh, figuring out um, where the gospel, uh, how the gospel fits, how to apply the gospel, uh, figuring out that it it reaches further than than you had assumed that it it reached, maybe. Um, And uh, I just want to affirm the fact that I'm on the same same road with you. I am totally trying to figure out how the gospel gospel reaches to every corner of my life. Uh, We use a phrase a lot at our church, the, the tentacles of the gospel. And, um, uh, and I, I think it's important that, that we work hard at that. Um, I, I think it's tempting to want to figure out some sort of a blueprint, grid kind of a way to handle the gospel. And then just everything I look at, almost just kind of like a stamp, just turn to parenting and be like, yeah, I know how the gospel fits there. And turn to marriage and I know how the gospel fits there. And, and, and without, without the wrestling, I, I think we need to wrestle with that. I think we need to figure out, maybe I'm not quite sure what, what aspect of this, the, the gospel, or how the gospel fits into this, and how the gospel makes me think differently about what I'm going through. Um, D.A. Carson uh, shared a quote that I thought was incredibly helpful for me, um, and, uh, and, and I'll just share it with you. He, he says, if you don't think you're getting it regarding the gospel, that's probably a sign that you're starting to get it. Um, and, and why would he say that? I, I think the reason he would say that is because fundamentally, the, the gospel humbles you. And so if, if there's, and, and so I, I'm, I'm fighting this, and that's why I'm sharing it with you. I'm not sharing it with you because I've conquered it. I'm, I'm sharing it with you because I'm fighting it. Um, if there's ever an, an, an arrogance, um, an elitism, in your effort to communicate the gospel 
to be Christ-centered in how you teach and think and have family devotions and, and instruct your own heart, if there's ever an arrogance or an elitism there, that's evidence that the gospel is actually not being applied to that. Um, so I'll, I'll give you uh, an example um, and, and a recommendation, too. Um, the Gospel Coalition Conference was a couple, a month ago in Chicago. And one of the workshops that I got to go to was by a guy named Ray Ortland. And um, Ray Ortland hasn't published a whole lot of stuff, but he does, he does write a blog, and it's incredibly helpful. But I went to his workshop, and uh, man, my heart needed it. Um, it was on uh, self-justification versus justification by faith. And as he taught, I don't think that there was anything super new that he shared about that, uh, in the sense that uh, we are so driven to want to justify ourselves, so that at the end of the day, I go to bed and either pat myself on the back for proving how good I am, or I go to bed distraught because I didn't prove how good I was. Um, and so I don't think there's anything new there. But, but what struck me uh, was this. He, he invited us to basically, you have got to get your hands dirty in the actual culture that you're living in, in regard to the culture of your church, in regard to the culture of your home, in regard to the culture of your own heart. And his invitation was based upon this. You can have all the right content and still have a heart and still have a culture that is, is justifying itself. And so I'll give you an example. And, uh, and I shared this example last night, and nobody told me the information, so I can still claim ignorance. I, I don't know if this church has Sunday night church. And, uh, and, and if it does, I don't mean it about this church necessarily. And your church might have Sunday night church, and I don't mean it about your church uh, specifically either. Um, but, but an example would be this. Y- you could have a Sunday night service and be teaching on the drastic difference between justification by faith and self-justification, and be teaching incredibly good content, while at the very same time, there are people that are at your Sunday night service because they think that they're justifying themselves by coming to more church. They would never miss Sunday night. Why? Because that's how they prove. That's, how they, that's the evidence. That's, that's how they know they're better than their neighbor. That's how they know they're more spiritual than the other people in their church, is that they come to Sunday night church. And so what I'm saying is they could be amening the content, but at the very same time functioning in a way to where they're justifying themselves. And so instead of us saying them and themselves, us, right, we can do that. And so an issue that I've wrestled with for a couple years now uh, is, and especially a month ago when when Ray Ortland shared that, uh, was this question. Why am I so passionate about preaching Christ-centered messages? I, I hope that it's just because that's what the Bible would want. That's what God would want. But if I'm honest, there, there's, there's a root there that says at the end of the sermon, I want to pat myself on the back and say, you nailed it. You, you found Christ there. And you didn't cram him in. You didn't force him in. You found him. And so in a sense, I'm trying to, to lead my church in a Christ-centered way. And at the very same time, my, my wily heart has figured out a way to actually make that effort a self-justifying effort. And so I just want to say, at a conference like this, soak it in, drink it in, but don't let yourself deceive yourself into thinking that just because the content's there, that somehow you've addressed the culture of your own heart, that somehow you've addressed the culture of your own home or your own church. That, that takes very, very direct work. So much so that you may have to go to war with some things that you don't actually think are problematic but that people are using to justify themselves. And so uh, a guy that's had a huge influence on me is, is Tim Keller. And, uh, and, and Tim Keller ma- made this statement, that you have to preach against irreligion, but you also have to preach against religion. And if you're not preaching against both of those things, then you're going to miss it. You're, you're going to miss it. And, and so we have to help our people see that as much as the, 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 the things that God calls us to do are important and necessary, there is an order of response and, uh, and it's not that I do this because I can get God's approval. It's I do this because I've gotten God's approval. And, uh, man, I just want to invite you into that, into that journey. Uh, I don't know if any of us are going to figure it out uh, this side of heaven, uh, but it's, uh, it's something just to, to raise a flag and, and pay attention to. 
Um, as far as my own road, I'm, uh, I'm, I've been a pastor, I've been in ministry for 13 years now. Um, the first eight of those were uh, as a youth pastor and an associate pastor. Uh, the last five have been as a senior pastor uh, up in, um, in Traverse City. Um, and so in 06, came there as a pastor. And the best illustration I can use is that it's kind of like launching a rocket. Um, you, you, you launch a rocket, and it's not until it's off the ground a little ways before you can actually see where that rocket is going, where you can actually see the trajectory of that. And so about two years in, um, partly due to incredible books and conferences that God was using in my life, but about two years into our ministry, my ministry there, um, there was kind of a pause and just a sense of, I think that's where we actually pointed the rocket. I think that that's what we were actually trying to do. But that's, gonna, that's not going to end in a good place. It's not going to facilitate what we think it's going to facilitate. Um, it was actually building towards self-justification. And, um, and so, in a lot of ways, we had a restart three years ago. And um, we're still, man, we are still trying to figure out so much stuff. It's, uh, there, there's a ton, a ton to work on. Um, but it is, it is incredibly enjoyable uh, to just be able to look at your church and say, uh, we, want, we want Christ to be, to be taught. Uh, we want Christ to be central, uh, and not just in our content, but actually in our community. And we wanted him to be central in our causes. Um, and so he is, uh, he is the primary uh, focal point, but it takes a lot of, lot of work. Man, we, just, we keep see, seeing it creep up in all these different places. And we're like, man, kind of like that ripple effect. The gospel, the, the centrality of Christ it just hasn't gotten out that far in our church yet. And so we think that we're doing better with our primary teaching points, um, but the further you get out, uh, the, sometimes the less we see it, and so uh, yeah, I just I want to, uh, I guess, share that with you, that uh, we're still so much on a journey, and, uh, and D.A. Carson, to use another D.A. Carson quote, um, uh, if you were at Gospel Coalition, he said this, he said it several times, but he said, if you read one man, um, you're going to sound like a twit. And if you know D.A. Carson, that's D.A. Carson's vocabulary. And he says, you're going to sound like a twit. If, if you read 10 men, you're going to be confused. But if you read 100, you're, you're probably on the verge of something. And so uh, I'm just standing here this morning to tell you I'm, I'm just past the twit stage. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm not going to share anything here this morning, I'm sure. I'm not going to share anything that's, that's, that's groundbreaking or uh, uh, that's original. Um, there are incredible authors that I would encourage you to be reading uh, at the top of the list. Um, my, my brother's here. He's not going to be surprised at this. At the top of the list is Tim Keller. If you are not reading to and listening to Tim Keller, um, uh, you, you, are, you are missing, in my opinion, the primary resource uh, in our day of, uh, of, of teaching us how to, uh, how to preach Christ. Um, and then one more book. I'm going to read a quote from this later. Uh, the Gospel Primer. Uh, for Christians by Milton Vincent. Um, it breaks into a couple different parts, uh, but the first part, I think it's 31 ways to preach the gospel to yourself, um, 31 ways to reflect on the gospel. And then the final section is Milton Vincent telling his own story. My story is different than Milton's, but there's a lot of things that resonate. And, uh, and you may find the same as, as you read that. And so... Um, you're going to find that book to be incredibly helpful, and uh, I would uh, commend it to you. Um, okay, so now, a little, ca a little uh, clarifier on the conference, uh, on my workshop. We'll pray, and we'll get started. Um, this past fall, uh, Jeff was up in Traverse City visiting our church, and uh, we were doing uh, uh, a little mini-series on the persecuted church. And, um, and, and the Sunday that Jeff was in, uh, I was dealing uh, at, at some level with Hebrews 13. And um, in that passage, um, in Hebrews 13, 3, um, the, the writer of Hebrews says that we should, uh, when we think about uh, our brothers, uh, when we think about other Christians in prison, uh, we, should, we should think about them as if we were in prison with them. Uh, and then he says, uh, those who are mistreated, uh, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. And so there's this, this invitation. The writer of Hebrews is inviting us to say, when we find out that another Christian is being mistreated, when we find out that another Christian is in jail, um, it should be as if our family member 
is in jail. As if, as if my own brother is in jail, uh, is, is being mistreated. I mean, there's this intensity to the relationship. The first phrase says it's actually as if you were in jail with them. And so if you think about your response to those things, what would your response be if you were in jail? What would your response be if your own brother was in jail? And the reality of your sister-in-law being husbandless and your children, your, your, your nephews and nieces being fatherless, there would be an intensity to that reality of suffering. Uh, and so as we think about global suffering, and you heard Rico say last night that 167,000 Christians were martyred in 2004, 20 per hour. <laughs> Man, that, there, there is, there is some, some learning for us to do there. Uh, and when we think about global suffering, uh, and so I want to uh, tell you that um, uh, I want to encourage you to study that, to think through that. Uh, if you're a pastor, to think about how you as a church can pray better uh, for your persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Um, and it should be as if your brother's in jail. It should be as if your own family member is, is being uh, mistreated. And uh, I, I mean, in a sense, I love what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And at the same time, I'm scared of that. Uh, in, in the sense of what, what does that mean? What, what does that mean for my response? And so, so look into it and, and, and pray about it. Um, however, uh, the, the more I studied for this workshop, uh, the, the more I moved to just a more broad approach to suffering. And, and so we're going to talk about suffering, but the, but the global component, um, I just I came to the conclusion we just don't have time to, to do both of these things well. And so um, we really are going to be, uh, it's much more broad on this, just the subject matter of suffering uh, and trials. So, so let's pray and we'll get started. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for um, this gathering and this workshop and the opportunity we have just to take a few minutes and consider this subject matter, uh, one that you uh, address uh, quite a bit uh, throughout the Bible. And as we just look at a couple passages here this morning, I pray that our hearts are, uh, are, are drawn close, uh, that we are awakened, uh, and that we have a much better uh, opportunity to look at our trials and to help other people look at their trials. Uh, and to do it in a, in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I, play, I played baseball uh, a little bit growing up. And I never liked batting when, I, when there were two outs. Because I always felt like I was going to the, end the rally. And so uh, last night, when, when I was teaching a workshop, last thing of the day, I just was like, you know, if, if I lay an egg here, I kind of I end the rally pretty badly. And I had a great day, and then I just, you know, somebody comes to my workshop and kind of wishes they hadn't. Um, batting first is a little bit better, but then you kind of feel like you get things off on the wrong foot if you strike out. Um, and so starting us off this morning, uh, right here off the bat, hopefully you got some food in your stomach. Um, I, I hope that the, the day can recover if you don't find this uh, workshop to be uh, very, very helpful. Okay, so the matter of suffering and, and trials, um, th this, this is tough stuff, uh, the reality of trials. Uh, j just this past Tuesday, I had a guy from my church, uh, he's a member of my church, uh, came in my office and, uh, and told me that his uncle, uh, who does not attend our church but is a professing Christian, um, had been in a bad car accident, and he was fine, uh, but the car that he hit, uh, a girl was driving the car, um, both of her legs had been amputated. Uh, she had significant amount of burning, uh, burns that had happened, and uh, she's in ICU, not expected to live in our hospital there in Traverse City. Um, it's tragic. Uh, what, what makes it worse is that this man uh, was drunk. And so um, he's going to jail. And if the girl dies, he may go to jail for 20 years. Um, there's some extenuating circumstances, and the indications are already that the girl's family uh, is probably going to file a civil lawsuit. Um, and uh, with him in jail, uh, they are probably uh, going to win the civil lawsuit. Uh, and so the wife of this man uh, is now uh, mourning the reality of what's happened, mourning the reality of her husband going to jail, and now mourning, in addition to that, the reality that she's probably going to lose the house in, in the lawsuit. Um, they have kids. None of them are in the house uh, anymore. Um, 
But that's, that's tragic. That's, that's, it's terrible. And, and so you think about the questions that come to mind. What, what if you're this guy? What if you're this guy's wife? What if you're the girl in the hospital bed? What, what if you're the girl's parents? Uh, the, the reality of suffering is, is here. The reality of suffering is, is, is very, very prominent. And if I asked you guys to, to come up to the whiteboard or whatever and just add to the list, you, you could add so many tragedies that you're aware of. Uh, I mean, we have a small church. Our church is 100, about 160 people. And uh, we, we have a lady who's dealt with uh, stage 4 cancer for 12 years straight. Um, we have uh, parents who are dealing with uh, openly rebellious children. Uh, we have uh, spouses who have been cheated on by other spouses. Uh, last year, we uh, had a, a 50-year-old guy who was diagnosed with cancer who died in a matter of months. Um, um, uh, praise to the Lord. He, he uh, had made a profession for, uh, of, uh, for Christ one year prior. And so uh, while he had cancer in his body and didn't know it, uh, he came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A few months later, ends up with a cancer diagnosis and then, in a sense, this new believer helps teach our church how to die. Um, suffering is, is, is very, very real. It's, it's, it's here. And, and, and often we're asking questions of, uh, of what do we do with this. Uh, and so we're going to try uh, to address three questions. And uh, we'll see if we have enough time for them. But, but, but the first one is, who is to blame? Uh, the second one is, uh, why? The, the big why question and then the third one is, how should we respond uh, to, these, to these truths? So, uh, who, who is to blame? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that almost no one is asking if suffering happens. Um, if you have lived for any period of time on this earth, you're, you're pretty aware of the fact uh, that, that suffering uh, is here. And if you don't believe that, uh, just look around. Uh, look, look at the southern states. Uh, look at the Middle East, look at Japan, um, and those are the big ones, the most visible ones, the ones you can turn on the TV and find out about. But look at your own church, look at your own home, look at your own heart. Uh, suffering is, is real, suffering is here, um, which then leads us on from there. So if, if suffering is here, um, th- there's an interesting human response uh, to, to difficulty, and that is we, we have a tendency to want to blame somebody bigger. And so if uh, I'm, I'm a pastor, and it, this happens frequently, if you're not growing, then you want to blame your pastor or, or you want to blame your church. Um, if your kid's not learning, you want to blame the teacher or you want to blame the, the failed uh, educational system. Um, if your business isn't growing, you want to blame the tax code or the economic, the state of the economy. Or, and you understand what I'm saying. That there's, there's this drive to say, in a sense, what well, well, can't be me. Somebody out there is to blame. Somebody, you know, we see that with lawsuits, right? Always looking to say, Some, somebody else is, is responsible for this. It, it, somebody else is, is, is guilty. Well, when things get really bad, we want to blame God. And, and our world does. And again, if you just look at recent tragedies, uh, Japan, Katrina, 9-11, um, we, we often, um, I often hear concerns about the fact that, that God is taken out of the public discussion. But then, at times like that, when he's brought back in, then we, we don't like that. We don't like that. We don't want God being talked about in regard to Katrina. We don't like God being talked about in regard to, to 9-11 and 3,000 meaningless deaths. We, we, we become very uneasy when our world starts to drag God into these tragedies. But the truth is that they're, they're right. I, I mean, they may be coming to wrong conclusions, but they're, they're right. I mean, we don't believe that God is AWOL for those things, do we? We don't believe that God was asleep at the wheel during 9-11. We don't believe that God was on vacation during Katrina. We certainly don't affirm this godless approach to these tragedies. And so when it happens and our world wants to drag God into the discussion for these bad things, in a sense, we need to say, well, how does that work? 
who is to blame? How does this all function? Now, the Bible would say, and this is probably running through your mind right now, the Bible would say that ultimately sin is to blame for suffering. The first two chapters of your Bible, there's no suffering. The end of your Bible, there's no suffering. But in between there, it's all suffering. Sin shows up and suffering shows up. At the end, sin is addressed and suffering goes away. So sin is, is, is the cause of suffering, ultimately. We, we, we understand that. But at the very same time, we don't think that God is uninvolved. We, we don't think that God is, is AWOL. We don't think that he is, is distant and, and, and disengaged. We, we certainly would recognize uh, that, that he is. And if you, again, don't believe that, uh, read, read your Bible. And, and you'll see Job and Israel and, and Pharaoh and Jesus all suffering at the approval of God. And never does the Bible give us the indication that God uh, wanted to make it stop or couldn't make it stop. And so when we ask this question of, of, of who is to blame, um, we, we look at sin and say, well, there, God's been forever, but suffering hasn't been forever. Sin showed up, and so did suffering, but God's still here. Now, now if, if, if we come to that from this biblical perspective of the reality of sin, what, what is the world asking? What, what does the world actually believe? Well, well, the most common response to suffering within our culture is to doubt and to question. And actually, in our culture, that's the response to everything, to doubt and, and, and to question, right? Um, but it leads to questioning God. And so some respond to the reality of suffering by just trying to get rid of God, by just trying to uh, make him a, a, a non-factor, um, th- there's a passage um, in, uh, it, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, um, and he talks about the fact that, w- what if Christ isn't resurrected? And his response is, if Christ hasn't been resurrected, then we should eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. Now, Paul is not saying, go be a glutton and a drunk. Because practical experience would tell you that that leads to a hard road. Whether Christ is in your life or not, addiction leads nowhere. It's it's a failed road. What Paul is actually saying is that if Christ hasn't been resurrected, then just enjoy it. One writer, actually it's John Piper in his book Desiring God, says this. There is a normal, simple, comfortable ordinary life of human delights that we may enjoy with no troubling thoughts of heaven or hell or sin or holiness or God if there is no resurrection from the dead. So you see what Piper's saying? Piper is saying that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then just enjoy your life. Just live by the 80-10-10 rule with your money. Tithe 10, save 10, and live on 80. Good rule, be comfortable, you'll have plenty of, of resources, um, yeah, be, be involved in good things, but man, make sure you still get your golf membership, make sure you still have, have fun, love your wife, raise your kids, have an enjoyable life, just cruise control, and enjoy this thing. Now, now pause for a second, isn't that how most of us are living? Paul's saying that's how we should live if he hasn't been raised. We certainly believe that he has been raised. But I love this quote because he says, there's this normal, simple, comfortable, ordinary life of human delights that we may enjoy with no troubling thoughts of heaven or hell or righteousness. So people, when they see suffering, they say, you know what? That's the road I'm taking. Just get rid of God. Just get him out of here and then I don't have to think about that kind of stuff. Well, as tempting as that might sound off the bat, it actually makes understanding suffering worse. Because one of the most atheistic things that exists is the idea of evolution. And a premise of evolution is only the strong survive. And so the weak being disregarded by the strong actually should be what we expect. If there's no God, what grounds do you have to say that this is unjust? If there's no God, what right would you have to say that you don't deserve that? You've lost all sense of standard. And so the point would be this. Suffering is hard for the Christian. But it's harder for the atheist. 
So, so that option really is, is, is not, not a great option. Uh, the, the next option, uh, it would be much more, much more specific. Is God who the Bible says he is? Uh, Tim Keller says uh, that people who are asking these questions often do it in two parts. Uh, and they, they would say this, either God is all-powerful, but he's not good. Because he can control all of this, but he doesn't care to stop it. And so he's a, he's a sovereign God, but he's not good. Or they would say, he's a really good God, but he's not sovereign. He would love to keep us from suffering, but he can't actually control it. He can't actually stop it. So, so here we are, coming to the table and saying, we actually believe that there is a God. We actually believe that this God is perfectly good. And we believe that this God is perfectly sovereign. And we believe that suffering exists. That's a tough spot. I think it's true that suffering is tough for the Christian. It's tougher for the atheist. But it's still tough for the Christian. And if our world is coming from one of those three angles, typically, no God, a God that's good but not sovereign, a God that's sovereign but not good, and we're saying we disagree on all three fronts, we say there is a God, we say that he is perfectly good, and we say that he's perfectly sovereign, then we've got some questions to answer. And the primary one is, is this question of why. And before we move to that, I just want to offer you another recommended book, uh, Crosstalk, by a guy named Michael Emlett. He's uh, connected to CCEF. Um, in that book, uh, the, the whole book's good, but there, there's a section of the book that's quite helpful. And he looks at people, mankind, through three lenses. Uh, the saint, the sinner, and the sufferer. And, and, and what I think is so helpful about that is, I think we would agree, right? <laughs> that we, we understand that the ultimate reason for suffering is sin but there's a lot of suffering that's not directly related to a sin. So the accident that I told you about at the beginning, the girl that's had her legs amputated that's probably going to die, she, she, that didn't happen to her because of a direct sin. She was driving home. And, and so we, we recognize there's the role of the saint. We recognize there's a reality, the lens through which we, we are sinners. But there's also a lens where, man, just being on this earth means that we, role, we function in the role of sufferer. It's just, that's part of the deal here. And so if we as Christians don't know how to engage with the issue of suffering, um, we, we're, we're in trouble. Because what we're going to end up doing is uh, either trying to ignore it all uh, or trying to stuff it down and, you know, uh, not, not, not get into those conversations. I don't know what to say to my neighbor when they suddenly lose their child. So they're important questions, and, and, we, and we need to chew on them. And, and the most important one is here is why. Uh, if we believe all those things, that there is a God, that he's perfectly good and perfectly sovereign, then why? Why does he allow them? Uh, the truth is we, we suffer, or we struggle with this more than we want to admit. Uh, the people in our church struggle with this more than they want to admit. Some of the questions I just shared, uh, the world offers. But man, people in your church are asking them. <coughs> They just know that they're not allowed to say that? That that sounds blasphemous to actually question whether or not God is good? But they have those questions? They're, they're residing there? They're, they're running through their minds? And so it's really important that we try uh, at some level to chew on this. And so what, what I'm going to do here, I, I hope this is helpful, is to, to zoom in on a specific area of suffering. Um, and then and we might not have total time to do this here, but then for you to kind of take that grid almost and zoom back out and then say, whatever suffering is happening, does, does this grid work uh, for all suffering? And so what is the primary area of suffering in America? Health. If your church is like my church, um, health is a huge area of suffering. I know if we go around the world, uh, we would find that persecution, um, uh, poverty, th those kinds of things are primary points of, of suffering. But in America... At least my experience so far has been that a primary area of suffering is, is, is health. Um, if you look at my church's prayer list, uh, my church's prayer list is way more physical needs than spiritual needs. And we're, we're trying to get to the place to where we pray for more hearts uh, than we do heart surgeries. Uh, but we're not there yet. Um, and so, so this issue of health. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. I'm sorry, Luke 5. Luke 5. 
And we only have 15 minutes here, so we're going to have to move, move a little quick. Um, starting in, in verse 17, uh, we have an, uh, an account here where Jesus uh, is uh, teaching. And uh, he's just done a healing. And now he moves into this uh, another teaching setting. Starts off by saying, as he normally does, um, or on one of those days. So here's Jesus doing his normal thing again. Uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law came. And for Luke, this is the first occurrence of the Pharisees. First time we, we see them show up. And so Jesus is teaching. Uh, a group comes. They've got a paralyzed friend. Um, and they want Jesus to heal their paralyzed friend. And so they cut a hole in the, they climb the building, cut a hole in the roof, drop their paralyzed friend through the roof. Obviously interrupts Jesus' teaching. I think it interrupt all of us um, to have a paralyzed man coming down from the, from the ceiling. He comes down and, and Jesus surveys the situation. And Jesus' response Um, in verse 20 is, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, um, I think you've probably run into this a lot, right? When you're you're reading the Gospels, you're kind of like, I wish I was there for that. What was the response of his friends? (laughs) Um, They they just did this incredible thing, scaling a building, cutting a hole in the roof, dropping the guy through, and Jesus' response is, uh, your sins are forgiven? I think they would say, that's not really why we came here. Um, we got a guy who's paralyzed. Um, in, in the verses following, it's funny because another group's mad at him. Uh, the Pharisees are mad because he would dare to say um, that your, your sins are, are forgiven. And so I think it's fair to assume that we've got two groups that are confused or, or mad. One group saying, we brought him here for a physical healing and you're talking about his sin. The other group saying, how dare you talk about his sin? I think that we could look at this passage and say this. Jesus wants to go deeper than this man and his friends wanted to go. And if you apply this picture to your own life, we feel our suffering very, very acutely. And we feel our friends suffering often, very, very acutely. And I think that it's not uncommon for people to seek God when they're suffering. To begin calling out to God. To begin asking questions. To begin calling upon him for for help. But often, the approach is this. If I could just get this problem taken care of, I could be happy again. If I could just get this taken care of, I could get back to the business of justifying myself. I was cruising along so good, and then cancer showed up. I was cruising so long, cruising along so good, and now this financial hardship. God, could you, could you fix this? Because I was doing so good. Could, could you fix that? And so we look at this picture, and it's possible. They brought him to Jesus to have his legs healed. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're not going deep enough. You're not going deep. I, I want to go deeper than that. This man thinks that what he needs is to walk again. But Jesus knows he has a much bigger problem than that. The Bible affirms this a million times. That Jesus is about the heart. He, he's about the heart consistently through the Gospels. Through his life here. And it applies to, to you and me. Jesus is fighting that lie head on. The lie that if I could just get this sorted out. I'd be happy again. I recently watched uh, C.S. Lewis's, uh, Disney's version of, of uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, I watched it with my, my girls a couple weeks ago, and it's a good movie, uh, especially if you like Chronicles of Narnia. They do a good job with that. But, but there is a section of the movie that they cut out from the book. Um, if, if you're familiar with it, uh, Eustace is one of the characters, little boy, one of the characters in, in, the, in the book, in the movie. Um, and Eustace is a snotty, snotty little kid, and uh, he's rude to people, uh, kind, of, kind of a bully, and they end up going to Narnia, and he finds treasure, and when he finds this treasure, he wants to keep it all to himself, and so in a sense, he becomes a monster. Well, in C.S. Lewis's way, he actually becomes a monster. He actually becomes a dragon, and... Um, and so then the movie progresses and he realizes that he can't go back to the ship because he's this big dragon and he'll sink the ship. And uh, Anyway, so he's, he's, he's this dragon. And, and so Eustace, 
um, tells of a, an interaction that he had with, with Aslan. And uh, Aslan represents, represents Christ. And, and Aslan says to Eustace, Eustace, I want you to jump in this clean pool and, and, and clean yourself. And Eustace realizes that what Aslan means is, I want you to take off your dragon skin and clean yourself up. And so as C.S. Lewis tells the story, he says that Eustace begins scratching at this dragon skin. And uh, he scratches one layer off, only to find that there's another layer of dragon skin beneath that. So he starts to scratch that layer off to find another layer of dragon skin beneath that. And finally, Eustace realizes he can't actually do it. He realizes that he actually needs help. And and so this is what Eustace says about his interaction with Aslan. He says, then the lion said, I don't know if he spoke it, but he said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tears he made were so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. That is what Jesus wants to do with you. He he wants to go deeper than you want to go. And so Eustace was okay with scratching his own skin. But once Jesus started to get to the core part of the problem, he said it hurt more than he could imagine. But the only thing that made it endurable was the reality of it falling off, of it being taken away. And that's what Jesus wants to do with your heart. And so how does it happen? Well, one of the ways is through suffering. That when we go through suffering, all of a sudden we get to this place that Eustace got to. And we realize, I I am desperate. I, I, I need help that I can't provide. And, 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 and here's an incredible quote. This is from Tim Keller. He says, Jesus is not going to play the rotten practical joke of giving you your deepest wish until he has shown you that it was for him all along. As we think about suffering, as we think about this reality of the, the ultimate need that we have, The Bible would affirm it time and time again that God says it's about your heart. That your heart has to be made new and you can't do that. And so why does God allow suffering? I'm not suggesting that this answers every why. But it's one of the whys. That he wants to go deeper than you're going to go yourself. He wants to go deeper than you'll let him go. But suffering often opens the door. Just think about it. How many people do you know who came to know the Lord through a tragedy? It happens all the time. It happens all the time where God gets to a place in their heart that they were resisting, but suffering opened the door. And I think they would agree with Eustace. It hurt more than they thought they could bear, but it opened their eyes to this reality of need. And in in this account in Luke 5, um, as it unfolds there, there's quite an interesting uh, flow of events because Jesus basically says to them, any miracle worker can say to a guy, pick up your mat and walk. That's actually the easy thing to do. Me saying your sins are forgiven, that's the hard thing to do. But just to show you that what I say happens, man, stand up and walk. And so Jesus shows them that what he says happens only to illustrate the fact that when I said your sins are forgiven, your sins were forgiven. What's ultimately important? That that man's sins were forgiven, not that he could walk again. Jesus wants to go deeper than we often uh, want him to go. Uh, let's just spend our last few minutes here on this third and final question. How, how should we uh, respond? I just shared with you, uh, invited you to think about the people that you know who have come to know Christ uh, through suffering or who have made significant changes in their life uh, due, due to suffering. But suffering is insufficient. You, you can't suffer your way into heaven. It's not good enough. It's, it's not good enough to go through hard things. And there have been sects throughout our, our, the history of mankind who thought that that's the way. <laughs> suffer. Like, let's actually invite suffering. Let's figure out ways to suffer more. But it's insufficient. 
few verses later in Luke 5, 33 through 39, Jesus is approached with a statement, but it's really a, a question. And we're going to have to move fast here. But, but in these few verses, Jesus cultivates uh, an atmosphere of no one would do that. Okay? That, that's what Jesus wants you to be feeling, is no one would want you to do that. He actually uses that phrase, no one, three times. And so the question is this. We know of three groups that are really serious about God. One group is your cousin, John, the Baptist, and his disciples. The other group is the Pharisees, and the third group is you and your disciples. John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples function the same way. They fast and pray. Your group, the third group, is odd. You don't do what they do. You are eating and drinking. And so there's no question mark there, but it's inferred. What do you have to say about that, Jesus? We have three groups we know of that are serious about God. Two of them are fasting and praying. Your group doesn't do it. What, what, what do you say to that? So Jesus tells them four illustrations, basically. First one is uh, about a, a groom. And he says, no one would fast when they're at a wedding. When, when the groom is around, no one would fast. And if you think about it, just a quick illustration. If you were on a diet, nobody diets on a birthday. I mean, women are breaking their diets all the time. Oh, i got to have a piece of cake. It's, it's, it's my birthday. No one, would take, no one would fast on their birthday. No one would fast in their culture. No one would fast when the, when the party's on at the wedding. No one would do that. And their culture would be like, yeah, you're right. No one would. And Jesus' point is... I'm the groom. My boys don't fast because I'm here. There's a day coming when I'll be gone. Fast then. Don't fast now. The wedding is on. Nobody fasts when the wedding is on. Then he goes into a parable and he tells a three-part parable. First part of the parable. No one who had a ruined old garment would take a perfectly good new garment and destroy the new garment by ripping it to try to fix the destroyed garment, the old garment, because it wouldn't work. The, the, the new material would shrink, and I'm no seamstress, but that's what I understand. So you, you sew a new piece of cloth into an old, old garment, and it won't actually work. And what's the end result? You've destroyed the new garment, and your old garment's not fixed. No one would ever do that. Second part of the parable. Uh, no one would put new wineskin into old wineskins, or new wine into old wineskins. And you probably know this. Wineskins are animal skin. Um, and you put wine in, wine ferments, it expands, and the, the animal skins expanded with, with the wine. Well, those wine skins would get brittle. They expand, that's as far as they could expand. They got old, they got hard. If you poured a new batch of wine in there, that new batch of wine would ferment and want to expand. And what would happen? The brittle wine skin would break. And now you've got a broken wine skin, and your wine is all over the ground. No one would ever do that. So no one would ever fast at a wedding. No one would ever destroy a new garment to try to fix an old garment. No one would ever put new wine into an old wineskin. And the third part of this parable, the fourth illustration that Jesus uses is in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. And some of your versions probably say the old is, is better. That's a, that's a good translation of that word, too. So this, this fourth illustration, this fourth part, third part of the parable, Jesus says, no one would ever, after drinking old wine, uh, try new wine. And what does he mean by that? He's saying this. If you have a taste for old wine, if you like it, there's nothing in you to go try new wine. Now, now I, I like Diet Coke, and I drink quite a bit of Diet Coke, and I, I know I may have just lost my man card, um, but, but just the same, I, I, I like it, I drink it, every once in a while, Diet Coke gets a really good idea, they think, and they'll try like, I don't know, cherry Diet Coke, or lemon Diet Coke, or lime Diet Coke, um, and, and I see them there, but there's just, there's just nothing in me that says, maybe I should try lime Diet Coke. I love Diet Coke. There is nothing in me that says, maybe I should try something else. I'm completely content. I'm completely satisfied with Diet Coke. And I know that that's pathetic, but it's true. Completely satisfied with it. And so that's the illustration Jesus is using. If you're content, if you enjoy the old wine, nobody says, ah, I'll change. I'll start drinking something else. Nobody would say that. So nobody would say, I'll fast while the groom's here. Jesus is the groom. Nobody would say, I'll destroy the new garment and try to fix the old garment. Jesus is bringing something new. Same thing with the wineskins. It's going to end up destroying both. And this final one. So 
No one, would fa- no one would fast while the groom's here. No one would destroy a new garment. No one would lose the wine and the wineskin. No one would try old wine or new wine when they like the old. But you must. But Pharisees, you must try the new wine. Nothing inside of you is saying, go try the new wine. Nobody would ever do that. But you have to. You're completely satisfied with your old system, but your old system won't work. And unless you're jolted, unless something awakens you, unless something changes the game, you're never going to leave the old. So no one would ever do that, but you must do that. You must do that. What an invitation. And and when we look at suffering, what does suffering provide for us? The opportunity to reevaluate. The opportunity to maybe say, Man, I I thought this old wine was working. I thought I was satisfied with this, but I'm I'm not actually satisfied with it. It doesn't actually hold the weight of my situation. And so we begin to look, and we begin to ask, and by God's grace, we turn to him. And we don't turn to him just to patch up the situation, just to heal the broken legs. We actually turn to him to fix the problem that we really need. But man, he says that to the Pharisees in all kinds of different ways, doesn't he? I came to heal the sick, not the well. Well, they think they're well, so they don't think they need Jesus. Uh, I can help you see if you realize you're blind. They don't realize they're blind. There's this reality where we need shocked. We, we, we need something to open our eyes. Last night, when Rico said, if you ask somebody how they came to know Christ, and they said they grew up in a Christian home, I think his advice was to take them outside and headbutt them. Right? It's the same thing here. These guys, they, they, they don't understand. They don't realize that they're actually lost. And man, suffering can be such an opportunity for those kinds of doors uh, to open. I, I'm over time, but I, I need to read you. Five more minutes. All right, thank you. Uh, let, me, let me read you a quote, and then we'll try to close this off. From wrestling, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, a gospel primer. Uh, the quote from wrestling, an angel, wrestling with an Angel was this. The writer of that book says, he often has heard over his life that God won't give you more than you can handle. And he says, really? Because my whole life has said he gives me way more than I could ever handle. To point me to the fact that I'm desperate. To point me to the fact that I need help that I can't provide. And, and, and we need to be aware of that. We often think, well, God won't give me more than I can handle. Really? Man, I think the evidence is that he wants to give you more than you can handle in order to, to, to break you, in order to awaken you uh, to the fact that you need to try the new wine. You need to find Christ. Uh, this quote here is from Gospel Primer. More than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. And every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purposes in me. When I view my circumstances in this light, now listen to this, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The the good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and to do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed into the image of Christ. Preaching the gospel to myself each day provides a lens through which I can view my trials in this way and see the true cause for rejoicing that exists in them. I can embrace trials as friends and allow them to do God's good work in me. So, so the Bible says this world is not as it should be. But the gospel says something shocking. It actually says that those trials, those difficulties, those realities of the world not being as it should actually can function as your friends. So, so how do I respond to trials? Well, I must see suffering as worth enduring. I must see every trial as actually something that is really good for me. But... Left to yourself, you can't do that. You, you might do it here and there. You might do it on occasion. But, but you can't do it with consistency. And you certainly can't do it as the suffering gets worse. But there is one who did. There is one who came and suffered more than we can imagine. And at every single step, he showed us what it's like to trust God in his suffering. But he went further than that, didn't he? 
His suffering actually led him to the cross and to death. Do you see what this means? No, it doesn't answer all the questions of, of why suffering is here. But it does answer why, what, what it isn't, what the reason isn't. And it isn't because God doesn't love us. It isn't because he doesn't care. Because he actually cared so much when he sees us and sees our suffering that he actually got involved with it. He actually came and suffered himself in order to rescue us from our ultimate suffering. And so this reality of us seeing our, our, our trials as friends will never be able to do that unless we've first seen the fact that Jesus Christ did that for us. And in doing that, he has carried, he has, he has bore the burden of our greatest suffering. And so now everything else in, compa- in comparison is, 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 almost, is almost nothing. I think that's what Paul says in Romans 8, isn't it? That the glory that is to come is going to make the trials here pretty well worth it. Pretty well worth it. <clears throat> if you've seen that, and if you've, if you've tasted that, if you grab hold of what Christ has done for you, now, in seeing what Christ has ultimately done for you, now you can turn back to your suffering, and you can actually face it. <laughs> you can actually look at it, and you can realize that God is after something deeper. That this might hurt, but it's for your good. One one writer says that God is not a fireman who gets called in after the damage has already started. He is a surgeon who plans the surgery ahead to get to the root of the the problem. One one last thought and then we'll we'll go. Um, Some of you may have read the book Reasons for God uh, by Tim Keller. Um, At one point in that book, uh, he's... uh, And there's a a company, a DVD that accompanies it. Excellent resource for you as a church and as an individual. Uh, But when talking about the confusion that exists with how God does things, and especially in regard to suffering, uh, he he says this. Six-year-olds are often getting disciplined and corrected by their parents. And they don't understand. I mean, they may have understood that they crossed the line. But they don't understand why it's important that they make their bed. They don't understand why it's important that they don't run across the road. They don't have any scope. They have no reality of the big picture. But, our, but the parent does. Now, if you're a parent like me, you, my kids unfortunately get disciplined because I get annoyed. But, but ideally, parenting should happen because, um, because I'm out for their good. Is it possible that we're all six-year-olds? Is it possible that every one of us is in that category? And we have one who loves us who has the full scope of things, who has the big picture, and when he looks at us, he says, no, this, this needs to happen for your good. You, you might not understand why. You might not understand, just like the six-year-old, you might not understand why you're getting grounded. You might not understand why you're getting spanked. You might not understand why you lose your allowance this week. You might not understand those things, but it's for your good. I think the answer is not, is that possible? I think the answer is absolutely Yes. We're we're all six-year-olds and we don't get it. We we don't understand all that's going on, but we have one who does. And as we face suffering, as we help our people face suffering, it's incredibly important that they taste that too. That they see that, yeah, we, we completely affirm that there is a God who is completely good and completely sovereign. And we affirm the fact that he loves you so much that he sent his own son to engage with your suffering, to go through it with you. So now he can not only relate with us, He actually rescues us in the only way that we really need rescued. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity to gather here. Um, We are uh, needy people. I I think of my own heart and uh, and the opportunity to prepare this and now to to share it, um, to realize how often my approach to my own suffering is uh, a full court press to get rid of it, just to get out of it, to figure out a way around it, whether it's a financial strain, a relational strain, uh, a physical problem, to just figure out how to solve it immediately without any thought of the fact that maybe you're after something deeper here. God, we rejoice in the fact that the gospel humbles us. Left to ourselves, we don't think that weakness is good. Left to ourselves, we don't think that humility is good 
is needed. Left to ourselves, we don't think that we actually really need someone to come and completely rescue us. But you think all those things are good, and not just good, but absolutely necessary. And so God, if suffering is what sinks that in, if suffering is what brings that home, then we want to receive it. Help us. Help us to view trials as our friends. The only way we'll ever be able to do that is if we see what Jesus has already done for us. That he's rescued us from our greatest trial. We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.